1: Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea.
2: Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden.
1: Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, he did the mash. I'm Joe McCormick.
3: I'm Lauren Vogelbaum,
2: and uh, our other host, Jonathan Strickland, is not with us today. He is on vacation, but joining us in the
0: podcast studio is a very special guest, Robert Lamb. Introduce yourself, Robert. Hey, uh, well, I'm the uh, co-host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a uh, podcast, blog, uh, video series here at How Stuff Works. Uh, co-workers uh, to the two of you, and uh, hey, it's uh, it's great to be here to uh, discuss the topic here.
2: It's really great to have you, and I'm. Especially excited to have Robert today because I would say he is the local HowStuffWorks resident expert
0: on our topic, which is monsters.
3: Yes. (laughs) Uh, In fact, you have a show called Monster Science on Stuff to Blow Your Mind.
0: Yes, and uh, and actually now it's hosted on the the HowStuffWorks uh, YouTube page itself. But uh, but yeah, I I always in I've always been a monster fan since I was a kid, and uh, since my my job here at work involves uh, looking at the scientific world, I've over time just sort of try to see how much I can I can go to the, the <laughs> monster well and bring stuff back in and, and combine uh, work and, uh, and passion together. And, and I find that they, they generally go together quite nicely.
2: So Robert's going to be joining us in two episodes, uh, two different parts, talking about monsters. In this first part today, we're going to talk about trends in monster lore, in monster thinking, in monster imagination. Huh? And, and what
3: monsters are.
2: Yeah, what monsters are, where they come from, uh, and what relationship they bear to the societies that create them, and especially the times in which they're created. And in the second episode, we're going to talk about future trends in monsters and make some predictions and prognostications, and, and maybe we'll find out if they come true. Or maybe monsters will get us and we won't find out. But for today, we're going to talk about where monsters come from.
3: You might be thinking, why are we talking about monsters in a show about the future? Right. Um, but the future of monsters is actually a really interesting topic that has a lot to do with both the the history and the current technology and all kinds of cultural factors going on.
2: So what is the future of the monster? And by that, I mean, what are the monsters of tomorrow? Can we guess what kinds of creatures, ghouls, ghosts will terrify us in that 30 to 50 year period in the future we so often reference? What does the next generation of horror stories look like? In order to predict what the future of monsters is going to look like, I think we need to first investigate what a monster is and how monsters are made. So what is a monster?
3: While we were preparing for this episode, Robert, you loaned us a really great book called uh, Speaking of Monsters, I believe, a compilation of essays on the, the cultural study, I guess, of monsterology.
2: Right. David J. Skull wrote a foreword to this book called What We Talk About When We Talk About Monsters. And he went a little bit into the history of the idea of monsters and the word itself. So the word monster, he says, entered English uh, in about the time of Shakespeare. So that would put it in the late 1500s, early 1600s, which is the part of the history of English we call early modern English. It's the kind of English that people today can sort of understand. If you go back much further, it's hard to understand without training. Um, and the characters of Shakespeare, actually, he says, find occasion to speak the word more than 80 times. I looked this up. A lot of this is in The Tempest talking about the character Caliban, the sort of fishy monster. He's referred to as a very shallow monster, a most perfidious and drunken monster, and a puppy-headed monster, (laughs) and a strange fish. uh, By the jester, I think, calls him all these things. But he's sort of taking pity on the monster at the same time that he's lamenting his monstrousness. Um, So Skull goes on to say that the term descends from the Latin noun monstrum which means sort of a divine portent, I guess that would be like a bad omen, mm-hmm. and that it comes to English through the French, monere. Would that be not monere? monere? I, I don't monere? Know
3: French. Sure.
2: Monere. Anyway, means to warn. And he adds at the end, I love this, that his favorite is the archaic adjective Monstrif. Monstriferous.
3: Monstrif-, Monstrif? Yes, yes. The word strife is right in the middle. Yes, indeed. It's a good word. It should come back. So
2: it's right there in the etymology of the word. Basically, a monster is a warning. It's a bad omen, an instructive lesson. Uh, Skoll also says, quote, monsters are slippery, ever-adaptive metaphors, but above all, they're natural teachers and teaching tools. Monsters demonstrate things. Her, get, usually. Get, 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 he, get what he did there. De- well, and I yeah. think that, that the words actually are linked at the root.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, they demonstrate things usually of a cautionary kind.
3: But also the idea of monsters wasn't always the domain of of fantastical beings, right? Uh, That's another thing that he talks about.
2: Right, that these uh, terrifying predatory creatures like vampires and werewolves weren't always the only thing you would think of when you use the word monster. It was often, unfortunately, applied to regular humans who were born with physical deformities, uh, who were often and in previous centuries treated as sort of strange curiosities or collected in carnival shows. Even in the 20th century, I think the association remained because the American film director, Todd Browning, he was the guy who directed Universal's Dracula, the big one, the Mm -hmm. 1931 Bela Lugosi Dracula. Obviously, he had success with that. But right after Browning's success with Dracula, he made the movie Freaks in 1932, which essentially doomed his career. It was not well received at the time, to put it lightly. Uh, It focused on people who worked in a carnival freak show and featured actors with real physical abnormalities. Audiences at the time really couldn't deal with this. It shocked them. It scandalized them. And I think a lot of why they reacted negatively was the fact that the so-called freaks weren't the bad guys in the film. You were asked to empathize with them. Right. So it was really ahead of its time. Yeah, a lot of people think so. Uh, Time has been kind to it, Mm -hmm. so to say. A lot of critics now really like it. Um, But today... Fortunately, I think we don't really have that association with real, normal humans anymore. We we, we think of the monster as a creature today. Right. In the past 80 or 90 years of horror movies in the West, I think it's been shaped into, and I, I put this definition forward as something for us to knock down or supply with more nuance, something like a not entirely human
0: creature that is the object of terror. What do you all think about that? Yeah, I would say so, though... I mean, when you start breaking apart examples of monsters and you look to other things that exist in, in just you know, pop culture, I mean, look at, look at say, comic book characters. Look at the X-Men. Like, mm-hmm. so many of these creatures are essentially monsters, beasts. Yeah, they're monsters, they're monstrous creatures, they're hybrids, there uh, uh, are various uh, very symbolism uh, caught up in their design, but we don't necessarily think of, say, Wolverine as a monster. That's a good point. Maybe you would say he's
2: not the object of terror. I don't know. There's something inherently mm-hmm. negative about the monster. Of course, then again, you could look at all of the cutesy monsters we have today. You know, the oh,
3: Chibi Cthulhu, fr- stuff like that. Right, yeah. uh,
2: cute little Frankensteins. So I don't know. It's a complicated concept. And I think because it's complicated, we need to look to somebody who has actually done some writing on this subject, uh, who's spent time researching it. and. Robert, you pointed us to a professor named Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, who is
0: a professor of English at George Washington
2: University. How did you come across Cohen?
0: Uh, well, I came across uh, his work in the, the book we mentioned earlier, Speaking of Monsters. Uh, okay. There's a, uh, kind of an, an abbreviated and cut-up version of uh, of one of his essays that uh, appears early on in that book. and uh, And I just thought that he did a great job. Uh, knocking out some of these uh, these core areas uh, of monstrosity, one of these these different areas where we can look at a monster and say, this is what it is, this is what it does, uh, you know from a, a cultural and symbolic uh, uh, way of thinking.
3: All oh, right. like how we create and and portray monsters in our culture.
2: right. And I think Cohen does an excellent job. I found this really illuminating and i'm and I'm glad you sent it to us. So, he has seven theses about what a monster is, what it represents, and I think we should just run through them quickly because they will help color our discussion of what the monsters of the future are going to be. Yeah. So, the first one of them, and I think this is sort of a, a good starting ground, is that he says the monster's body is a cultural body. And I think what he means by that is that the form of the monster is not arbitrary, it's a metaphor, it's a signifier, it's a distinct product of the certain time and place. In which it was created, and it actually means something.
0: Yeah, I mean it's very much like science fiction in that regard, because science fiction is 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 interesting in its ability to predict what the future will be like, but it's always far more interesting in telling us what people were thinking about at the time, how they were looking into the future, Uh, what
3: their anxieties were. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you see that that kind of those anxieties also manifested in the monster. Yeah. Uh, so his second thesis
2: is that the monster always escapes. I actually found this the most difficult to get at exactly what his meaning was. But Lauren, I think you, you read something about hopelessness into this.
3: right? I, yeah, I'd call hopelessness really this aspect of what monsters are, how we use them, because uh, the thing is, is that they're not as scary if they can be permanently defeated. So so they always come back. You know, there's always that last scare or that possibility of a return. You and know? And they always shift through that uh the right. the kind you know, of little back in new forms right, right, you know, so like whenever one grave closes, another opens, yeah <laughs> maybe <laughs> sorry <No. laughs> they're they're also um right they're they're changeable, and I think that that's part of the scary thing about monsters like like you know, being that change itself is scary, so it works as that sort of metaphor too. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Which leads us really into um, his next thesis, being that the monster is the harbinger of category crisis.
2: This one, I think, is really important. So basically, he's saying that a monster cannot be neatly categorized. It doesn't fit into the taxonomy we create of things in existence. It implies a mixing of classes or categories. Uh, He he says that monsters are, quote, disturbing hybrids with, quote, externally incoherent bodies, uh, a form suspended between forms that threatens to smash distinctions. And I think this rings very true to me. I, I sat there trying to think about monsters and almost all popular monsters I can think of represent some form of deep category confusion So all undead creatures, ghosts, vampires, zombies, mummies, whatever you can think of, they confuse categories of life and death. They violate our taxonomy of of life. Animal hybrid monsters like werewolves confuse the categories of the sapient human on one hand and the mindless beast on the other. And when you start looking at this, you kind of see it everywhere. I was just thinking about Ridley Scott's Alien, where the xenomorph was uh, designed by H.R. Giger, and that incorporates a kind of abstract aesthetic category confusion because it appears to blend both biological and mechanical.
3: I also read it as a little bit of our fear of the illogical or, or right, the uncategorical, um, you know, stuff that we can't understand or define, which represents stuff that we can't control, which sucks.
0: Yeah. I mean, the beast man is the, the great example, really. I mean, whether you're talking about a, a werewolf or an ape man or a moon beast or what have you, is that <laughs> you see that. Uh, you know, that that divide between the uh, the the the, the, so the higher functions of the mind and the way that we we, we want to be and then our our, uh, our bestial nature yeah. you know mm-hmm. and and that's something we've wrestled with forever you know there's a, how do we separate the two how do we come to terms with the uh, with the you know the, the the bestial ruttings in our heart you know and uh, and so in that the the monster becomes this category crisis uh, in In another flesh, but also within our own flesh, and within our our, within our own experience.
2: Yeah, I I think it makes sense that category confusion like that causes fear because we have these heuristics for how we deal with things in the real world. You you encounter a problem, and if you can quickly categorize it into Mm -hmm. something you've dealt with before, you probably have a set of rules established on here's what I do when I meet. A, Mm -hmm. But if you meet A mixed with B, you can't use either set of rules.
3: And also frequently our internal problems or or internal conflicts are a lot less easy to ascribe to to a single, you know, to to see in a black and white kind of way. Yeah,
2: totally. Uh, Okay, so Cohen's next thesis is very related to this, I think, which is that the monster dwells at the gates of difference. In other words, the monster is difference embodied. Cohen says, quote, by revealing that difference is arbitrary and potentially free-floating mutable rather than essential the monster threatens to destroy not just individual members of society but the very cultural apparatus through which individuality is constituted and allowed.
3: Uh, So this is kind of the classic other, you know, capital O, other. Yeah. Um, You know, specifically persecuted segments of the population based on religion or class or sexuality or gender, sex or race or culture of origin or et cetera, like like anything about your neighbor that is different than you and therefore kind of freaky. Um, And and yeah, that that. It can demonstrate, I think, either our fear of the other or our fear of being the other, of being placed as that uh, undesirable.
2: Right. I think part of what he's saying is that the idea of the monster as the other sort of brings into focus the fact that you are not normal by your own virtues, that it's sort of arbitrary that you're in the normal camp and that at a moment's notice, you could be in the other camp.
0: Yeah I mean my mind instantly turns to some of the old uh, red scare monsters and uh, and and, yeah. and terrifying science fiction that you saw of the day where you know the body snatchers exactly. it's uh, oh, it's yeah. uh, some sort of uh, communist force uh, from from outside of our world That's, uh, <laughs> or that's the goopier version it conquered the world Yeah <laughs> <laughs> And I, well, another thing I love about this is just the, the idea of monsters sort of emerging at these uh these these kind of Fault lines in our culture, you know these, which yeah. uh, mm-hmm. which which brings to mind some of the theories I've, I've read about uh, serial uh, killers, uh, particularly in the United States, where you see that the trend rising in the '60s, obviously a time of of great social change, mm-hmm. peaking in the 1980s. Uh, where still you have, uh, you have change taking place, technological change, culture is changing. Everything seems to be, cha- you know, we're still sort of clinging to that idea that the, the the future is going to live up to our expectations, and then it begins to fall off. And then at, but then at the same time, you also see, uh, you know, if you want to go with sort of the, the media um, view on serial killers, uh, you see fewer slasher films. You see the the, the psychotic huh, in the yeah. woods with the with the knife sort of falling out of favor. Uh, and you see the more purely monstrous ideas uh, uh, coming to light in cinema.
2: Totally. Yeah. So the next thesis is that the monster polices the borders of the possible. I think we are all pretty familiar with this. It's simply that the monster is at the edge of knowledge
3: uh it's it's border patrol yeah it's it's um exposing the danger inherent in in being curious or in questioning standards or in stepping outside of convention you know off the path um to take the classic fairy tale kind of look at it um and and it's interesting he says specifically because the monster itself is transgressive and also punishes people who transgress.
2: Right. So this could be all different kinds of transgressions. Actually, I said knowledge, but it could be there's a place you're not supposed to go. And if you go there, there's a monster or there's knowledge you shouldn't pursue. And if you pursue it, you
0: create a monster. Or
3: there's a way that you should be. And if you are different, then you're a monster. Exactly right. Or you create one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, Frankenstein, which we'll discuss later, uh, You know, is the classic example. This is the reason Frankenstein is an adjective now in our science headlines. You mm-hmm. know, you can't uh, inevitably you go through you go through your science headlines enough and you or you hear enough science commentary and you'll you'll they'll throw out the the, the F word the yeah. Frankenstein <laughs> word regarding uh, some particular um uh, scientific advancement or another be it um genetics and cloning be it neuroscience um in generally regarding the human condition but uh we hear it all the time.
2: Yeah. You know, we post a video about something and somebody – it's either the Matrix or it's Frankenstein.
3: <laughs> uh, the, the idea of transgression, though, leads into the next thesis, which is the fear of the monster is really a kind of desire yeah. um, for, for that sort of transgression or for escapism or for freedom from whatever you're bound by or for sexy sex, sex, if you're putting it very literally mm-hmm. or et cetera.
2: Right. Cohen says, quote, the monster is continually linked to forbidden practices in order to normalize normalize and enforce, but he also says the monster also attracts, and I think the idea is that because it's linked with the forbidden, it becomes associated with the no-no pleasures, so <laughs> hence you have teen paranormal C- romance a scientific and, way of putting it, yeah <laughs> well, it, the, the, there's a general association between the
0: monstrous and some kind of titillation right yeah yeah.
3: no absolutely as opposed to sexy sex sex which is also the extremely um scientific way of putting that
0: yeah i mean like the vampire is promiscuous right and uh and and in his or her own way and is ultimately uh staked for it you know i mean yes
3: or or all of the teenagers who uh boink and then get killed terribly in slasher flicks but but indeed in,
0: in general though with um you know, you, you see a, a really great monster, and you can't help but want to be that monster. There's always a yeah. freedom in being the monster. There's a the monster isn't bound. Yeah, and, right. and and you want to, you know, a really good monster you kind of identify with on some level, or another, especially when you look at, at the uh, like the classic Universal monsters. Oh right. And I feel right. like that's one of the reasons they a- appeal so much to, uh, you know, especially like to t- t- teenagers and younger people. You know, because here are these they're all outsiders, they're all outcasts that have that have also found a certain strength in their outsider status, you know? So you can't help but, but want to be the creature from the Black Lagoon. You can't help but but see yourself as Frankenstein. Yeah, and I would say... Frankenstein's monster, rather. I don't, right. Don't want anybody to <laughs> jump for that. Right.
2: <laughs> uh, I'd say even at a sort of baser level in the, the lower quality storytelling, let's look at the Friday the 13th franchise. Early in the franchise, I think you are more genuinely asked to identify with the characters who are the ostensible victims uh-huh. to be with them, as time goes on, you can tell that the the pitch to get the audience to identify with the human characters gets less and less... <laughs> They care about this the, less, right? Yeah, it's clear that the audience is coming to identify with Jason.
3: Yeah, well, because the the teenage characters get worse and worse as the films go on. I mean, right. and not not more poorly written. I mean, they're terrible human beings, and so there's a <laughs> well, certain
2: they, they're also more poorly written. Well, but yes, yes, but but
3: so so there's a this this sounds sociopathic, I know, but but if you think about it, there's really a pleasure in watching these awful people get terribly murdered. Uh, I think the Final Destination series, especially the latter ones, is a really good example of.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally true. Now, but when Jason goes to space and to the future (laughs) of Jason X, I remember there being a lot of likable characters and one android who who, uh, had to die at uh, Jason's hands, though. So that one kind of breaks it a little bit. It's
3: probably an inversion of its own trope. Obviously, I think that I, th- I think that's really what they were looking to do with that series.
0: It's a very challenging <laughs> film, I'll give it, you that. I, <laughs> I, no, no, I think it is. Uh, Jason X is a smarter movie than some people give it credit for. It's, yeah, it's it's well worth seeing, if only to see uh, uh, Cronenberg show up and, and bite. Oh no, I've on.
2: seen it. Yeah.
3: yeah, I actually haven't watched it. I I need to check it out now. Oh,
0: you were in for a treat. I mean, really, <laughs> once a horror franchise goes into space, like that's where it really hits the golden, right. uh, you know, golden age. It and is leprechaun the final in frontier. Space. Yes, yeah. I'm yeah. really pushing for <laughs> Leprechaun in space, into hood. I think that's the, the trifecta. In, in the hood of space? Yes. Yeah,
3: yeah. The space hood?
0: The space hood.
2: <laughs> okay, we have one thesis left. Yes. Cohen's seventh and final thesis is that the monster stands at the threshold of becoming. He says monsters are our children. And I think this makes sense. The monster looks back on us. So it is a way of criticizing us, interrogating us, and forcing us to consider why we created it.
3: Uh, Sometimes they are literally our children, you know, in like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist or all of those other parental angst horror flicks that started cropping up in like the 1970s, Mm -hmm. Um, up through the, you know, now trope status of that creepy little kid that shows up in every single horror flick. Um, I mean, portrayed frequently by different actors because kids have this pesky habit of growing. Um, But uh, less literally i think it's also part of the reason why um doppelganger horror resonates so intensely because the the monster there is is literally yourself or or ourselves i suppose um and and coping with that is is really unpleasant and and it's a natural thing that we have to do kind of every day
2: okay so as we've seen from these theses especially the first one that Monsters don't appear in a vacuum. They are a result of the conditions in the societies that imagine them or or revitalize them whenever they become popular again. They reflect a feeling in culture, and these feelings are caused by external events. So they could be social upheaval or, or changes in in values or very often changes in technology and science, and I think we're going to especially focus on that toward the end of the podcast here. But I thought we should look back At how some trends in cultural thinking in the past and trends in technology have influenced waves of monsters.
3: That, that uh, yeah, yeah. The human mind. Uh, just to give you guys a few examples of the things that we were talking about in the last section and, and all of those theses. Um, so okay, so going all the way back to, to ancient myths and folklore, you know, it's, uh, stuff that had come out of every culture from 4000 years ago and, mm-hmm. and beyond, um, bas- basically, as long as people have been writing stuff down, they've been writing about monsters. And uh, a lot of the time in the d- distant past it was a lot of like force of nature kind of stuff or that uncategorized beast sort of thing um the a, a chupacabra or the lamia uh, which was one of the precursors to the vampire um and and wrath of the gods kind of stuff like people being punished by being turned into monsters yeah. um uh, the arachnid tale from from greek culture or um or cautionary tales against stepping off of literal and uh, metaphorical paths
2: I think a lot of times in ancient literature and in ancient religions, monsters are gatekeepers. So you, you can see that in like the Epic of Gilgamesh mm-hmm. and things like that, where, where you have a monster that stands between the hero and his goal.
3: Yeah, yeah, or or you know, as as something that's a physical representation of a disease that wasn't understood at the time. Oh yeah, oh, um, yeah. or um, or of course the the other big one, neighboring cultures being made uh, monstrous. Like I, I I read somewhere, I, I think in one of uh, I think in this in this book, something about the the Cyclops supposedly being a, a neighboring culture to to Homer, and that he was kind of oh. saying something really racist.
2: <laughs> well, there's no shortage of that. In- <laughs> In the ancient world and somewhat in the modern world, so
3: Yay, we have that to
2: contend with. But uh, I, Well, let's look at how sometimes the monsters actually react to science and technology. I want to start right, with yeah. Frankenstein, which is actually, I think, sort of the monster, actually. Yeah, Not and- Frankenstein, the the person, but Frankenstein's, <laughs> Frankenstein's creature. Well, I, mean, I could argue with that one way or another, well, but okay. sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, Frankenstein... Who uh, is more monstrous? Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, the title of the novel, uh, by Mary Shelley. And I think there has been a long, relatively anti-science streak in horror. And I think this relates to Cohen's thesis on policing the borders of the possible, punishing excessive curiosity... I think this is perhaps best expressed in the concluding line of Ed Wood's 1955 film *Bride of the Monster*, where they watch Bela Lugosi get crushed by a boulder, I think, and then. Uh, oh, and, and there, then it's like
0: an octopus. Yeah, yeah, there's like a squid or yeah. There's an octopus
2: yeah. strangling yeah. I think rubber him. <laughs> squid. Yeah, but I, I think they left the motor off, so he's just throwing <laughs> yeah. the arms over himself. Oh, yeah. yeah, and then they look at stock footage of a nuclear explosion, and the <laughs> the police guy who's been shooting a gun at nothing. Says he tampered in God's
0: domain. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's Frankenstein uh, to a T, right there. I mean, it's a, a manifestation of our fears and apprehensions about uh, moving forward with our technology, about where it might might bring us. And I think n- maybe not as much with Frankenstein itself, but in terms of uh, of other works that have that 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 Frankenstein quality to them. Uh, you know, this warning about the future. I feel like sometimes it's about that the fear of what our technology will uh, uncover about our universe, about ourselves. So it's, it's kind of that don't, don't look behind the, the curtain. There's going to be something horrible behind the curtain. In our minds, it becomes the monster. But in reality, it is, uh, it is the revelation uh, about who and what we are.
2: Yeah, I think it's strange that, at least to me, what's still resonant about Frankenstein's story. And I actually really love the novel. Oh, it's a wonderful novel. There are a lot of modern criticisms of it, but I think it's excellent. And it's excellent because of the pathos of the creature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The scene where the creature is observing the family through the crack in the wall and wishing he could be one of them, but he knows he's ugly. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes. It's a really beautiful story. The technophobia, I think, doesn't hold up as well. At least to me, but uh, it it seems like it's a, a reaction to the Enlightenment, basically. Mm-hmm. That it came, this was written in the early eighteen hundreds, and we just had a couple centuries of this dominant Enlightenment thinking among the wealthy in Europe, and and that it could be very much a reaction to that kind of you know scientific experimentation.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, there was also a lot of um, a lot of very startling at the time, new technology that was that was becoming more widespread uh, electricity and stuff like that, that that everyone was kind of going, oh, oh, this is a thing. Yeah, this is a thing that is going to change our world really hardcore. Yeah. Uh, so I so, think they all used the word hardcore back then. <laughs> Sorry, yeah.
2: You, yeah, you can understand why people then would be afraid. I think we should now move on to the, the sort of the early 1900s pulp sci fi. And Lovecraft, I actually wanted to ask you, Robert, where do you think Lovecraft fits into this? Because on one hand, he's just so weird and out there. But <laughs> do you think he actually fits into his cultural time and place? Is the Cthulhu mythos and all that actually a reflection of, of how Lovecraft saw the world?
0: Uh, yeah, I think very much so. It's um, tough to blow your mind. We did an episode a few months back uh, titled The Science of Lovecraft. And, uh, and that came out of the fact that I was just rereading a bunch of Lovecraft stories at the time. Uh, Some of them I had not read since I was in high school. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And and back then, you know, I'm reading them and I'm enjoying them just on that fantastic and horror and supernatural level. And now I'm rereading them, you know... Couple of decades later, with with a little more science under my belt, and I'm and I'm noticing, you know, that he's he's mentioning Einstein, he's mentioning mm-hmm. uh, yeah. um, uh, um, some of the the scientific uh, theories of the day, and he's and uh, and so we did this episode, uh, we interviewed uh, S. T. Joshi, who's a one of the world's preeminent uh, Lovecraft experts uh, just can rattle off encyclopedic uh, information dates and uh, and, and all the, the fine details just off the top of his head and uh, got him talking about science and Lovecraft. And indeed, you see a lot of science in his work because Lovecraft, in addition to writing these fantastic stories, he wrote about science. He was always intrigued by science. He kept abreast of the of, of all the scientific uh, headlines popping up in the day. And. Um, and his work is, I mean, so much of it is essentially science fiction. You have, sure, fantastic monsters uh, popping out of the woodwork, but, so, but in many cases they are grounded in, uh, in some sort of extraterrestrial uh, reality. Um, hmm. And then as far as, uh, you know, talking about monsters being a product of the time, I mean, you, you see Lovecraft's writing coming out uh during uh, you know the wake of the the great war um, it, at the same time Einstein's theory of relativity is really uh, shaking up 20th century science uh and so he had to wrestle with the relativity and quantum theory while trying to maintain a uh, materialist uh, point of view uh you look at works like 1931's The Mountains of Madness uh and uh, and here you see him drawing on his scientific fascination with the Antarctic and scientific discoveries that were coming out of what was the the last genuinely unknown terrain on earth so so even though it's easy to uh, ignore the science in Lovecraft, uh, I, I think it's all there. I mean, it's it's right there in the in the, the foundation of uh, most of his stories, really.
2: Yeah, I think that was another time of of intense intellectual turmoil. You know, Indeed. sort of the modernist period. People didn't know where the the intellectual world was headed especially with, as you say, uh, relativity and quantum theory. I mean, those are strange things today,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and and now they're they're very well accepted. Back then when they were new, I don't know what you'd make of them.
3: Uh, but, hey, speaking of 1931, coincidentally, that is also the year that um, Browning and Lugosi's Dracula and Waylon and Karloff's Frankenstein came out, ah. which uh, kicked off that entire uh, big-budget monster movie treatment.
2: Yeah, I would— site probably this year as the beginning of contemporary
0: monsterdom
3: yeah so strangely enough like I had never put that together before huh. before I was doing the research for this show yeah, um, you kind
0: of don't think of those two worlds meeting existing on separate planes
3: mm-hmm. yeah um and and I would kind of argue that that in those very first two movies that um that our monsters weren't as sympathetic to to start out with you know they that no. they were pretty monstrous they they were doing the mean stuff and uh, and it was it was a lot easier to sympathize with their victims um but it's super interesting to me that over the next few decades they would definitely like you were saying earlier Robert become more the heroes than the villains of these pieces um you know of course leading to like the complete inversion of of those monstrous others with stuff like the monsters and the Adams <laughs> family coming out in the 1960s you know it's we were inviting oh. them literally into our homes hey, you
0: great I've never thought of that Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at that, that first Frankenstein film. And if you're coming into that, I mean, and, I mean, I obviously, I think all of us here, we probably saw that Frankenstein before we read the book. Uh, but if you were coming into that movie from the book, I mean, it's, it's almost insulting how, <laughs> yeah. how off it is because <laughs> here's this just lumbering, uh, Whoa, Neanderthal basically kind of, yeah. stitched together from corpses mm-hmm. as opposed to this, uh, you know,
3: French speaking, yeah, this yeah.
0: brilliant philosophic monster uh-huh. that, uh, that you encounter in the, in the books. <laughs> um, and he was—he w- he was easier
2: to identify with when he identified with Satan from Paradise Lost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean,
3: as do we all, right? Uh,
0: <laughs> well, there's yeah, there's a strong case to be made there. I mean, there's yeah. there's a classic monster, essentially. Oh yeah. Uh, oh absolutely. Tremendous. Yeah. I myself am hell. <laughs> <laughs> And like you were saying, Lauren, you, you see that evolution coming out of uh, these two films as D- Dracula becomes more and more um, uh, relatable and uh, Frankenstein's monster becomes more and more relatable. Uh, and with Frankenstein, you see that uh, it, the, the scales tip, especially with the uh, with some of the Hammer films. Uh, oh, China, yeah. Where, uh-huh. where Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, is himself essentially a monster it's like the films are more about how horrible frankenstein is uh than his uh creation
3: oh absolutely yeah
0: yeah uh, okay so
2: after the universal monster movie uh-huh. era, and
3: simultaneous to all of this kind of stuff that were the, 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 that we've been talking about um afterwards we had of course the atomic age
2: right and i think this is a very direct response to scientific frontiers. It's it's pretty obvious. (laughs) I mean, we split the
0: atom. Right.
2: (laughs) So between World War II and I would say between World War II and the countercultural revolution, horror was dominated by atomic age monsters. So this would be between the late 40s and the early 60s, most of the 50s. Horror movies were based on. Uh, Fears about nuclear experimentation causing mutations. So you get movie after movie after movie about giant mutated bugs, giant mutated crabs, lizards, shrews. They couldn't get enough of this stuff. I guess people just kept going back to see what's the big animal this time. Oh, it's huge lemmings. (laughs) Terrifying. (laughs) But you had so many movies like this. You had the high profile like uh, Godzilla in 1954 created by nuclear weapons. You had them which was 1954 also, giant mutated ants. But then you also had a zillion just cornball movies like Roger Corman's 1957 Attack of the Crab Monsters, (laughs) which is about these people go to an island to study the effects of nuclear testing, and they discover it's created giant mutated crabs, and some scientists throw grenades at the crab, and the crab tells them they are foolish
3: all right. Speaking giant mutated crabs, I, I can't get over how delicious that would be. I... <laughs> yeah, more butter.
0: <laughs> I'm, I've just always been fascinated by uh, The Amazing Colossal Man that came out in 57, um, which I think I first saw some some clips uh, of that from the uh, the movie It Came From Hollywood, which was kind of oh, a yeah. Yeah. mashup uh-huh. of clips with like Dan Aykroyd and uh, John Candy and Gilda Radner in it, which, which holds mm-hmm. up, I thought, really well when I rewatched it recently. But Amazing Colossal Man, you have, uh, you know, an army man and just an everyday Joe. And then the, the atomic bomb test uh, uh, or unatomic bomb test occurs, radiates his body and he keeps getting bigger and bigger. And they have to check his growth. And it's, you know, it, one cannot argue that it's a, a great movie. Uh <laughs> It's it's a good monster B movie. But the the monster is just a giant man. Yeah. And, it, and I always found that fascinating because here. He's not a lumbering, you know, mindless creature. He's a he's, he's 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 a human, and he's he's dealing. He's trying to deal with what's happening to him, and uh, it's it has a very strong Frankenstein quality to it, almost almost by accident. Huh. I'm sure it's not
2: much like Beast of Yucca Flats, where uh, he Tor Johnson gets. Oh, (laughs) detonated and turns into Tor Johnson with oatmeal (laughs) on his face. Well,
0: you know, it's interesting. They did a sequel to um, Amazing Colossal Man, and uh, they couldn't get the same. They didn't get the same actor to play him. Right. To play the the man himself, to play Glenn Manning. Uh, I can't remember if Glenn Manning was the. The character or the actor, but anyway, in the sequel they just have half his face scarred up and like a visible skull, and he's just a lumbering monster. Oh. So they kind of revert to form, but I, I feel like they really had something in that uh, that first film. I've actually never seen it. Yeah, I'll yeah, check me it neither. Out. Yeah. Right. Uh, this is a
3: great like like possible Netflix key list. Yeah, right. There's an MST3K
0: right version of it. <sighs> that's that's probably it. the best way
2: to, yeah, to <laughs> I'll we'll have to check that out. Uh but of course after the atomic age we got the 60s. Uh, all right, the
3: 60s and 70s and all of the social upheaval that was happening then. Um uh, during which I I think that there was a uh, Partial shift from, from that fear of the other to that fear of being the other. Um, yeah. you know, through, through all of that social awareness and rebellion through the, the civil rights movement and feminism and the Vietnam protests and, and just uh, everything was, was saying that, you know, you had to be a certain way. And the youth culture certainly was, was saying, ah, nah, y'all, we, we do <laughs> not, let us not do that. Um, so you know there we started seeing the monster beginning to be the protagonist um especially in the 1980s on with um with Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula and 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 Rices Louis and characters like that who were uh, way more sympathetic than even the pretty sympathetic human characters that were running around with them
0: now um, a horror film from that era that i've i've found really interesting uh, is uh one titled Blue Sunshine have, oh, you, have you seen this one i, have not I know actually that one yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's a great one because it's, uh, it's, you know, it's the aftermath of, uh, of the sixties. Right. The past
2: coming back to haunt
0: you. Yeah. The past coming back to haunt you. These, uh, individuals who took, uh, LSD, uh, during the, uh, you know, the good times during, during the, the the social (laughs) people, the 1960s. So now they've moved on. They've, a lot of them have normal jobs. They're trying to, you know, trying to have a family. They're, they're trying to just be a part of the system as opposed to, you know, escape from it. And, uh. The the LSD that they took decades earlier is suddenly kicking back in and turning people into monsters. Yeah. And, oh, uh, no. oh. you know, it's <laughs> it's a, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting concept that it, it does play into our our cultural fears and our, and our and and our really our scientific fears as well. You know, what have we what are we doing and what have we done to the basic human proposition?
2: Yeah, I, I can see that. There's also in there something about the, the fear of the sort of medicalizing or pharmaceuticalizing of American culture. I mean, there's mm-hmm. plenty of fear to go around about that. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: yeah. I feel like there's there's definitely a whole subgenre of just sort of pharmaceutical horror. And yeah. in, in in a podcast where we're talking about what the future holds for us yeah, uh, in terms of our <laughs> monsters, I feel like we're only going to see more and more of that.
2: Yeah. Okay, I've got one more trend I'd like to talk about, and then we can shift to... What's the future hold? But the last trend I want to talk about is the most recent one in my mind, which is what I would call e-horror. It's fairly recent, I would say, in the 90s and 2000s, though I think Lauren has a bone to pick about that. Uh, But it seems to have mostly come to America and the West through Japanese horror. And the monsters of this type, in one sense, I think are fairly conventional, malevolent ghosts or wraiths. But what's unique is their association with technology and electronic media. They seem to associate themselves with and invade your safe spaces by way of electricity, radio signals, videotapes, computer networks. I would think of stuff like the ring and things like uh, I watched the, a horrible American remake of a Japanese movie called Pulse. Uh, mm-hmm. This was recently. Also let us not forget bad. fear.com. Yes, yeah, oh God. <laughs> Oh, the <laughs> pulses, it, they come get you through your cell phone. It's oh. just unbelievably hmm. bad. But, uh, but th- this is a trend, at least, that that we can see because I can remember when I was a little kid, I associated ghosts and monsters inherently with things that were sort of more ancient and more natural. So the woods or an old house, those were places that could be full of ghosts but a computer lab was a safe place. There were no ghosts there. Something about the technology just didn't fit with the ghost picture. Just scare them right off. And I, I just never would have thought that they would be there. But now I feel like that line has been successfully blurred. I can be afraid of a ghost in a computer lab now.
3: I'm still really upset about The Ring if I've never mentioned it on this show before. <laughs> like, I'm I'm still p- completely terrified of, of that character. Um, uh, though, though, yes, my, my bone to pick with this is that I don't think it's a wholly new thing, but rather uh, an extension of, of a bunch of previous technophobia kind of stuff. Uh, like like going back to what you were even saying, Joe, about Frankenstein, um, and also looking at what sci-fi horror writers in particular were doing with like intelligent and monstrous machines, like like Bradbury back in the 1940s, or Harlan Ellison in the 1960s, or Stephen King in the 1980s. Let us not forget Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> um <laughs> Or let us forget it entirely. Um, I, you know, pl- plus what what writers like uh, William Gibson and Cronenberg were doing with the whole uh, soul in the machine more than ghost in the machine right. kind yeah. of kind of concept starting in the 1980s. So, I think I think this e horror trend is is more of a uh, just just a new twist or a new combination of that good old. Uh, Anxiety about death, uh, with anxiety of these specific new technologies.
0: And once you get into the the virtual realm, and even just the internet itself, you just see uh, you know a, a, a transposition of the the sort of same idea of we have these accepted pathways in life and in culture and in technology, and you it, it, you you stray from that path at your peril. You know, right, the, the yeah, guy walking yeah. between towns at night, if he gets off the beaten path. He might be maybe eaten by a monster, and and you see that with the internet. You know, right. if you go to <laughs> the, the secret forbidden website. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's all. If you go to the dark there, web, you know? then yeah, yeah and then something out there might come for you. So it's uh, the FBI. Of, yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, there's there is a lot. There's a lot of shadow. There's a lot uh, of room for the monstrous, uh, <laughs> even just on the modern internet. And then when you start looking ahead. You know, imagining the so-called you know Internet of Things and and imagining we are giving potentially giving all the horrors of the Internet the ability to actually crawl out of our machines and and, uh, come, you know, slobbering out of our 3D printers and find its way into our bed.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, not even to mention the fact that we are inviting all of this technology that most of us on a personal basis don't understand how Um, it works into our homes and into our beds and into our, our very private lives.
0: Now, one thing I want to I want to just throw in here uh, that uh, that I think is key to to understanding monsters and thinking about monsters is that you can you can have a monster like Frankenstein's creation that is just you know superbly crafted and has a lot of thought put into it and is really just this philosophical entity and and you can learn a lot from it you can you can sort of hold it up to the light and reexamine uh You know, human culture and your own role in it and the future of humanity. You can
3: write many deep essays about yeah, it. Yeah, but
0: you can also hold up a really bad monster, like a monster just made on the fly for no money with limited FX budget and that Toxy? monster yeah and that, <laughs> that monster can be just as fascinating and a, and a part of that is just because you know we've talked about already about the the the, the, the myth the folklore the, the 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 cultural crisis that's bound up in the creation of all these monsters and you, see, you end up with all this symbolism and so you can just accidentally or create or almost subliminally create a monster that is just you know stupid as all get out or just or based (laughs) on every cliche in the book but if it's turned just the right way it can just be so fascinating just
3: as relevant right absolutely
0: okay and so
2: unfortunately we're going to have to stop there for today but join us again next time uh, on our next podcast with Robert when he will help us predict the future of monsters (laughs) and take what we've learned this time and see where we're going to go down that dark and scary path.
3: Make some um, terrifying extrapolations.
2: If you want to get in touch with us, you can search for us on Facebook or Twitter. We're on there, on Google Plus also. Or you can email us at fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. And we will talk to you again really soon.
3: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com brought to you by toyota let's
1: go places asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances so if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest that's why it's got to be a cfp did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200k for one eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you.